This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. It's Sunday, September 2nd. I'm Margaret Brennan, and this is Face the Nation. Saturday's send-off for John McCain capped an emotional week of tributes from the family. My father was a great man. He was a great warrior. He was a great American. I admired him for all of these things, but I love him because he was a great father. Friends. There's a special satisfaction that comes from serving a cause greater than yourself. I heard John say those words hundreds of times, but for him, we know they were not just words in a speech. They were the creed that he lived by. And political foes. Well, what better way to get a last laugh than to make George and I say nice things about him to a national audience? Although McCain's biggest political antagonist was not in attendance, daughter Megan sent some straight talk directly towards him. The America of John McCain has no need to be made great again because America was always great. What's next for politics after McCain's passing? We'll talk with Ohio Republican Governor John Kasich. Plus, a conversation with McCain friend and Senate colleague John Kerry about his new book, Every Day is Extra, reflections on his service to the country as a Democratic nominee in 2004 and President Obama's Secretary of State. All that, plus plenty of political analysis coming up on Face the Nation. Good morning and welcome to Face the Nation. Thousands turned out at Washington National Cathedral yesterday to honor John McCain. Those who eulogized him rebuked the politics of today's political climate and remembered McCain as one who aspired to do better. We gather here to mourn the passing of American greatness. The real thing not cheap rhetoric from men who will never come near the sacrifice he gave so willingly nor the opportunistic appropriation of those who live lives of comfort and privilege while he suffered and served. So much of our politics, our public life, our public discourse can seem small and mean and petty, trafficking and bombast and insult and phony controversies and manufactured outrage. It's a politics that pretends to be brave and tough, but in fact is born of fear. John called on us to be bigger than that. He called on us to be better than that. One of the attendees at Saturday's memorial service for John McCain here in Washington was Ohio Republican Governor John Kasich. He joins me here. Thank you for coming in. I know you were there at the memorial service. Something that Senator McCain thought through, he planned, <laughs> really? he orchestrated every little bit of it. What do you think his message was? Uh, come together, have guts, stand up. You know, I mean, that's the thing about John. John was so comfortable with himself. Leaders walk a lonely road. And John did not like people that did this, put their finger in the air and get the wind. He was, he was so comfortable with himself. And it really didn't matter to him who he was going to have to take on or what cause he was going to go for. Uh, if he felt it in his bones, in his heart, and in his soul, then he went forward. And I think that was the message. Megan McCain, his daughter, delivered a really <laughs> She made moving... me cry. She made you cry. She made me cry for two reasons. One was 
the deep love she had for her father. And you know the other thing that made me cry? The deep love that sometimes girls have for their daddies. And I've got two little girls. That they're not little anymore. They're in college. And I, I, it just brought everything home. She was, she was just incredible. And uh, She's her father's daughter. She was strong in her words. Well, this, yes, and it was yes. clear who she was speaking about. John McCain, no matter what position he took, always figured out a way to build a bridge. And now we have a leader who is either unable or unwilling to unite the country. And at the same time, to be able to use this, the strength, the strength of America, whether it's the economic, whether it's the military, or the political strength, to make the world a better place, to use our leadership to raise the bar, to get to a better place in the world. And that, these are the things that frustrated John, that we were not unified. Is there another Republican like John McCain? I mean, because many of your fellow Republicans, many of them sitting there at that service would say, yes, the president may be a flawed individual, but he's a flawed vessel for an agenda that we like, whether it's tax reform or getting more conservative judges on courts throughout the country, including the Supreme Court. Yeah. So it's all excusable. Yeah. It's a transaction. Yeah, but, but it is not a transaction. And, you know, today we look for politicians that not only understand the issues but also can engage in a bit of poetry, can bring us together. Who so, is that? Well, right, I don't, I don't think that's the time to project who that is, but I will tell you family separation is not American value at the border. It, is, it isn't. The idea we're going to deport these people, that's, that's not, to me, American value. Bringing up massive debt, and we like the tax cut, but there was no tax reform. It was a problem. And trying to strip health care away from 20 million Americans. It seems as though we have been backing a lot of people into a corner, using our power, our economic power, to get what we want. Mm -hmm. And in the short run, we might win. But think about somebody who's powerful, somebody who's rich, who forces you to do things that you bitterly resent. There are better ways to get it done without having to use your power to extract what you want. Sometimes you got to be tough as nails. McCain was. I am. But at the end, most of the time, it's persuasion. It's, it's seeking the better angels in life that allow us to be more successful than just pounding on people. As John McCain's longtime aide, Mark Salter, said sometimes... He questions, do you need to, to, to kill the party of Trump to save the party of Lincoln? Is that where we are? We're in a tug of war. And we understand, I understand, the difficulties that people have. But the party is worth fighting for. And yet this week we saw some primaries in, in Florida and Arizona where uh, those running on the Republican ticket seem to have to pass a test, a loyalty test to, to Trumpism. Mm -hmm. And that kind of contradicts some of the conservative yeah. party you're describing. Fortunately, our party is shrinking. We're, we're now down to about 25%. It's all becoming like a remnant. The parties go through this. But the party has shrunk. And in my state and in my community and in my district, we had a congressional race that the Republican who took my place was able to win by 17 points. Just a couple weeks ago, he won by the skin of his teeth. And I talked to him the other day. I'm proud of him. He's saying that the tariffs are a bad idea. He's also beginning to say, you know what he said? He said, turn off the television. Don't listen to all the talk television and get, let us get together as Americans. You I was proud of him. You President Trump endorsed yeah, him that, as yeah. well. I did because I work with him in the legislature. And I saw him during the campaign articulate some views that I hope was go were going to be independent. But there are Republicans I'm not campaigning for. They're just I just won't do it because if you're a divider and if you can't see the fact that we need to unify people, then I can't be for you. I mean, nothing personal. I just can't help you. Will you campaign for Balderson in November? when he? Has I don't to think it'll be a problem. I mean, he's off to a good start. And the, rate, and the district is so overwhelmingly Republican. That was what's so shocking about the closeness of the race. He's going to be fine. But, the but there are so many other places where Democrats will use their resources. And by the way, they need to get their act together. You know, we spend so much time talking about how lost the Republicans are, but you think about the Democratic Party moving farther and farther to the left. That's not Our country is center-right or center-left. It's not on the extremes. Your political party shouldn't matter so much. Vote for the person. If you were to run yourself in 2020, as many are saying you might, you would still run as a Republican, not as an independent, not as another voice. I, I am The party's a worth saving, you're saying. Well, I'm going to do my level best. But at the end, I worry about my country. I worry about my country being a great leader in the world. 
not more conflict, which can lead to, <laughs> let's not even go there. I want my country, where the people that live in this country, whoever they are, to feel as though they have a hope, they're respected, and they can be successful. That, to me, is what it is really all about. Last question. You knelt in front of uh, John McCain's coffin at the Capitol. What were you thinking? Well, I had a word with John. I said, John, you remember I called you when uh, you were sick, and I asked you if you were okay with the big guy. And I said, uh, I said, John, I'll see you up there someday. Keep a place open for me, would you? And I got up and, and left. Governor, thank you. Thank you. Also among those who mourned John McCain yesterday, his old friend, former Senate colleague John Kerry. We spoke with him earlier this summer, prior to McCain's death, about what Kerry hoped to do in his new book, Every Day is Extra. If you work to implement our democracy by uh, reaching out across the aisle, by building relationships, by believing in the better angels of American value system, and I think John McCain did that, uh, I did that, others have done that, but right now we have a culture divide that has been accentuated by political so-called leaders. And what they're doing is they're operating in a factless world. And my book, I think, is a, uh, is a display of the ways in which you challenge those who would try to tear it apart and not deal with facts, uh, and how you, in fact, can hold the system accountable and get back, back to the fact-based uh, democracy we rely on. Are you going to be hitting the campaign trail? You bet I am. Uh, I think that's the most important work we can do right now, is trying to uh, elect people on a national basis and, and uh, restore well, the leadership that the country needs. How do you define what Democrats stand for these days? I, I think each Democratic candidate is going to define it as they go out and speak to people in their districts. And out of that, I, I believe, will come... Uh, the future consensus that's necessary to take a party as a whole uh, to a better place. But it's a party in crisis. Well, it, it, <laughs> I'll probably get smacked for this, but, you know, what I learned running for president is that you don't have a party per se where you have adherence to a strict platform, et cetera. You have an amalgamation. You have a group of people who call themselves Democrats, but they speak with different nuances and different approaches to various aspects of political choices in life. Are you going to run in 2020? I'm really not thinking about it. Talking about 2020 right now is a total distraction and waste of time. What we need to do is focus on 2018. Well, I'm going to ask you that same question sometime after November. If you catch me. <laughs> if I catch you. You mentioned running uh, in 2004, and you write a lot about it. In some detail, you hadn't actually made public before some of the difficulties along the way. Yeah, there's a lot of... I've never said anything much about it. Do you regret not fighting back harder against the swift boat attack ads? I do regret that, and I say this in the book, I'm very clear, and I take responsibility for it. It's my, it's my ultimate decision. I'm responsible for it not having happened. But, yes, I believe it was vital particularly in the last days of the campaign, to be addressing advertisements that were such a grotesque distortion of uh, the reality of what happened in the rivers of Vietnam. And you regret picking John Edwards as your vice presidential candidate? I write in the book about the qualities that you're looking for when you choose a vice president. I think when you articulate those qualities and then you measure what took place against the qualities that I very much lay out there that you're looking for, it didn't measure up. It wasn't what we had hoped for. So there was some disappointment in that. When we come back, we'll talk to former Secretary of State John Kerry about his policy differences with the man he served under, President Barack Obama. Memories make us laugh and cry. And sometimes cringe when we look back at our fashion choices. But in between flashbacks of bowl cuts and dad jeans, our memories are fading. And so is the old media that holds them. Hi, I'm Adam Baselogger. And I'm Nick Mako, and we're the founders of Legacy Box. Legacy Box is the easiest and safest way to preserve your family memories. Here's how it works. Fill Legacy Box with your outdated media. We professionally digitize and send them back on DVDs, thumb drive, or the cloud. Look, those forgotten home movies, VHS tapes, film reels, and photos are degrading right before your eyes. Experience peace of mind and enjoy reliving the glory days. 
Join more than half a million families who have already trusted Legacy Box. Save your memories today. Visit LegacyBox.com save. And for a limited time, get 40% off your order. That's LegacyBox.com save for 40% off. LegacyBox.com save. John Kerry served as President Obama's Secretary of State in his second administration, and the two men didn't always agree on foreign policy, especially when it came to Syria. I want to ask you about another key relationship, Barack Obama. Specifically, you said, I never succeeded in persuading him to give me the tool I wanted most, greater leverage. Correct. What do you mean? Well, from the moment I was nominated and asked, what about Syria, I said, We have to change Assad's calculation. And throughout the four years I was Secretary of State, and privileged to be so, I always raised the issue in the meetings we had about how we needed to change that calculation. I particularly believed that after Assad had been violating ceasefires, it was clear he needed to be taught a lesson. He needed to know that we were going to hold him accountable, and I raised that directly with the Russians, and I put several ideas on the table. The president was not persuaded by my argument. Um, I believe that uh, we had several options we could have done at very low risk to be able to make it clear to Assad that when we had a ceasefire and when he said he was going to live by it, he had to live by it. And I thought we should have done that. Was he too risk averse? As I say in the book, my job and the job of anybody in a cabinet is to put an idea in front of the president, to argue the idea. The president is the decider. And there is no clarity by which I can say to you, I was 100% right, or the president was 100% wrong, or vice versa. Those are the judgments that are made by a president. But do you think he was too risk-averse? No, I think he had an attitude about Syria and a judgment about Syria. And he had a feeling about where that might take him if he made some of the decisions that I and others uh, proffered. Well, you write about this in detail. It's an entire chapter in the book. Because you to be very frank, we're hung out to dry here because you went on television. I don't television. write that. I don't say I was No, that's my characterization. You know that. You're I know that. My... I'm characterizing your retelling, though, where you went out and you made this prosecutorial, what I write very about careful is the argument degree... about the chemical weapons Correct. attacks. And what I write about is we paid a price for the way it played out without the red line being enforced by the bombing. But we got the chemical weapons out, which was the objective. Even though there have been chemical weapons attacks since then. We knew there were precursor chemicals, and and we knew that there was chlorine, which when mixed, they still had Billy. Those aren't declared. That's just the vagary of the uh, system by which they But there have been sarin gas attacks since then, so under the Trump administration. Absolutely correct. And I supported President Trump's uh, response to those partially. I, re- I, I supported the use of force, but I don't support just a one-off where you drop a few bombs and there's no follow-up diplomacy and no additional effort to try to use the leverage you get out of doing that. I thought that the president should have done that. President Trump should have done that. And You thought President Obama should have done that, yes, too. Yes, that's correct. You were sent around the world to rally support for other countries to stand with the United States to say that this red line on use of chemical weapons needed to be enforced. How difficult was that for you, given that the president blinked? He decided not to go through with those military strikes. Congress was clearly not going to give him the authority that he wanted. But you thought that the president could have gone ahead with those strikes. You were in the book, you write about being surprised when he called you and said, I'm going to go to Congress. I was surprised. I thought we were going to go forward. I thought that weekend was the weekend. I expected the phone call to be telling me that he decided we were striking that night or whatever was going to happen. And it wasn't. Uh, My job was to then affect the president's policy. And I did the best I could in going to Congress and arguing the case. Uh, but I do write that we paid a price for that. Mm-hmm. There's no question about that. We paid a price. And, and all the explanations and everything else doesn't change the perception. And perceptions sometimes are very telling in diplomacy and politics. You, you paid a price. You mean the red line moment has come to, for many critics of President it's... Obama, define his foreign policy and define it as weak, as not backing up a threat. 
for many people, that's exactly what I ran into. And I ran into that in the Middle East. It was something that I had to push back against for a long period of time. Uh, and that's why I say perceptions. But perceptions matter, obviously, in everything. Um, but I don't think it's fair in terms of the president, quote, being weak. Because the president took a lot of very tough positions and, and did a lot of things that evidenced strength and that showed a president who had a very clear moral compass as well as a very clear, uh, a very clear set of values and principles by which he knew he could protect our country. I'm pressing you on this because you write in the book about thinking even now about what you call the open wounds in Syria that you think almost every day. Well, the open wound in Syria is that uh, maybe 500,000 people have now died. It was about 100,000 back in 2013 when the chemical weapons attack took place. Uh, it has been an ongoing uh, atrocity, uh, a violation of every uh, sense of propriety, of, of human rights, of uh, diplomatic rectitude. I mean, you run the list of things that are at stake in Syria. It is a sad history for the international community, not just for the United States. It is the failure of the global community to hold a tyrant, a war criminal, accountable for his behavior and to have come together and tried to end a war. What, 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 I'm proud of is, war now. what I'm proud of is that we continually tried. We never stopped trying, even when it was tough, even when it looked bleak. And you took some heat for not stopping. Well, trying. yeah, we took heat right up into the end, but that's okay by me. Assad is in the driver's seat today because of what Russia and Iran, uh, Hezbollah, uh, have done. So we have an open wound. Yes, a global, an international community-owned open wound. In the, those days, those very intense days when you were working diplomatically to try to build support to stand with the U.S. In, if they were to go through with a strike. We were at that press conference in London. You asked the magic question. Is there anything that Assad could do? That was your question. Is there anything at this point that his government could do or offer that would stop an attack? Uh, sure. He could turn over every single bit of his chemical weapons to the international community in the next week. Turn it over, all of it. It turned out to be uh, uh, the way we solved a critical problem. It was uh, done purposefully in order to put out there a notion without a formal proposal, just as an answer to your question, which came at the right moment. Uh, and within an hour, I had a call from Sergei Lavrov who said, let's follow up on that. We're interested in seeing if we can make that happen. There'd been a dance going back and forth, and I write about that as to whether or not they could or couldn't do it, were interested in it or weren't interested in it. But after I said it publicly like that, they took that as the possible off-ramp. And it turned out to be the way to get it done. Do you regret that this is the diplomatic off-ramp that you ended up with, that ultimately what you strongly believe should have happened didn't? No, what I regret is that there is uh, that such a incredibly powerful uh, perception gained a foothold the way it did that had an impact on people's judgment about what the president was willing to do or not do. Not enforcing the red line. Correct. That's, that's regrettable. It's regrettable for everybody. Uh, but I, I don't regret that putting, uh, you know, the uh, idea on the table. And I think it was a terrific outcome in the sense that we got all the declared weapons out of there. Well, because there have been at least two large-scale chemical attacks Correct. in the past few years. Well, and during which time he's had an opportunity to reconstitute and gain a foothold, and there's been no further inspection and nothing else going on. In our next half hour, we'll get some thoughts from Secretary Kerry about the current president and Mr. Trump's efforts to undo the Iran nuclear deal. Are you having trouble sleeping? NFL players have been coached. Blue light from smart devices, it can affect your sleep. They'll even wear blue blocker glasses in the evening for improved sleep. Others will try tart cherry juice and smoothies. Not only can it help fight inflammation, but to help you sleep, it's got high amounts of natural melatonin that's beneficial for sleep. 
The other night, my girlfriend told me I was snoring way too much and even the earplugs weren't helping. So the next day, she took me to the Sleep Number store because if I was snoring, at least she could get a good night's sleep on a Sleep Number bed. Sleep Number beds allow you to adjust on each side to your ideal firmness, comfort, and support. The Sleep Number 360 smart bed senses your movement and automatically adjusts to keep you sleeping comfortably through the night. With Sleep IQ technology inside the bed, it tracks how you're sleeping so you can know every morning how well you've slept and gain insights for your best sleep. Experience the smart, effortless comfort of the Sleep Number 360 smart bed. Find your competitive edge with proven quality sleep from $999. Sleep Number is the official sleep and wellness partner of the NFL. You'll only find Sleep Number at one of their 575 Sleep Number stores nationwide. Find the one nearest you at sleepnumber.com slash cadence. That's sleepnumber.com slash C-A-D-E-N-C-E. Sleep Number. Next week marks the unofficial kickoff of the fall campaign season and also the official kickoff of NFL football. We'll be talking about both next Sunday on Face the Nation. Welcome back to Face the Nation. We continue with our conversation with former Secretary John Kerry. You spent a tremendous amount of time working to get this deal with Iran for them to freeze their nuclear program. That's President serious. Trump said it's the worst deal he's ever seen. Yeah, but just saying that doesn't make it that. This is the toughest agreement in terms of inspection, accountability. No country has had to do what Iran did in order to live up to this. But to just walk away while Russia, China, France, Germany, and Britain are all trying to keep this agreement in place. Only the United States walked away. Only Donald Trump, his defense secretary, thought he should keep it. The secretary of state that he got rid of thought he should keep it. His intelligence people thought he should keep it. The fact is, this agreement is working. And you tried and to save without this the deal States. Yes, I did. behind the scenes. Well, I tried. And that really angered President Trump. You were calling other foreign ministers. You even spoke with Javad Zarif. He well, at that point the in Iranian time, the minister. policy of the United States was still to support that agreement. But the president thought you were trying to undermine him. No, I was trying to have the policy of the United States of America, which is part of the agreement, to continue and common sense to continue. I didn't negotiate. I spoke out. And I will always exercise my right to speak out. But President Trump would say he was elected on a platform of exiting this deal. And he went out and attacked you personally because of the phone calls I, you were I, making. I, I don't put any stock in, in, in that at all. He said John Kerry never walked away from the table except to be in that bicycle race where he fell and broke his leg. That's it. I did walk away. And we almost walked away on two or three other occasions where we thought it was necessary. So he really, unfortunately, and I say this sadly, um, you know, more often than not, he really just doesn't know what he's talking about. He makes things up, and he's making that up, as he has other things. Didn't you want to say something at the time? Tweet back at him, at President Trump, when he attacks you? I haven't yet. I think America and our democracy are more thoughtful than dishonest tweets. Do you think President Trump's unpredictability is or can be an asset? I would never say no to that, but unpredictability that destroys 70 years of uh, a strongly defended message, such as NATO, or unpredictability with respect to uh, what your policy is with respect to nuclear weapons or disarmament or whatever, uh, or Russia, is not a good thing. There are certain times where unpredictability invites uh, an overreach by a country. Our full interview with Secretary Kerry is available on our website, facethenation.com. Secretary Kerry's book was published by Simon & Schuster, which we should mention is a division of CBS. Joining us now for some political analysis, Edward Wong is a diplomatic and international correspondent for The New York Times. Selena Zito reports for The Washington Examiner, is a columnist for The New York Post, and is also a CNN contributor. Margaret Taleb is the senior White House correspondent for Bloomberg News. She's also a CNN political analyst. And Kelsey Snell is a congressional reporter for NPR. Welcome to Face the Nation. Uh, Ed, let's start off with you. Uh, Secretary Kerry there basically laying out his regrets about Syria. We know today 
The Secretary of State now, Mike Pompeo, is warning three million people are at risk in Idlib, Syria, of imminent disaster. The Pope is warning about this. The U.N. is warning about this. What is the Trump administration doing about it? Well, the uh, Trump administration officials say that they've, um, various people like Pompeo, Mattis, have spoken to their counterparts and to Russian officials about this. But if you look at the Trump policy, it's not that different than Obama's policy. And so far, we haven't seen any action that would really push back against um, a, a large Assad military action or backed by Russians and by Iranians. And so um, I think that Assad won't feel a compunction to really hold back. I think Idlib province is the very last holdout of the rebels, and he's going to push ahead with whatever offensive he has lined up. So despite the tough rhetoric against Iran, the group they're backing and Assad is winning this war, and the U.S. is not doing anything to stop this slaughter. Right. I think that um, we saw Trump do a symbolic action earlier in his administration. He fired the missiles on the airfield in Syria, but that didn't uh, hold Assad back. And um, unless there are tougher actions uh, on Assad and on his allies, we won't see him holding back at all. But they have warned, right, that they're willing to do that. And Bolton sent that message very clearly. To, if there's if, use of chemical weapons. If there are use of chemical weapons, that it would be... Uh, not just uh, equal to, but but more significant than the previous attack. But it really is in conflict with the administration's desire to get out of Syria, which they've also been trying to negotiate, if possible, if the Russians are willing to make commitments about Iran. So these are two policy goals in, in real conflict. Now, I had a, a former Obama administration official say to me, policy's not that different. We just felt bad about it, <laughs> which is an incredibly cynical way of, of looking at what is happening on the ground right now. Margaret, uh, I want to ask you just right off the top, uh, the publication you work for, Bloomberg News, you just had an extended sit-down with <laughs> President Trump. It was amazing. <laughs> it, well, and, and it sparked its own controversy. Uh, the president now uh, attacking Bloomberg um, for what he is claiming was leak of off-the-record information. Bloomberg's denied it. The reporter who printed it came from a different publication. You have not violated that off-the-record uh, standard in the course of your comments, I know. But what can you explain to us about what happened? And I should also add, the Canadian reporter also has said that he, without identifying who a source is, it wasn't us. So um, we had a interview with the president. Um, we had talked to the White House and said... Uh, our readers have a big interest in the economy. We'd love to do this going into the Labor Day weekend. And they granted us an interview. Um, we were supposed to go about 20 minutes. The president said he was feeling intellectually stimulated. And so we were thrilled to get about double the time. We had 45, 50 minutes in the Oval Office with him. And we covered, you know, the waterfront, basically everything from NAFTA to North Korea to Jeff Sessions and midterm politics. Uh, and on the subject of NAFTA, what he told us uh, on the record was that Maybe they get a deal with the Canadians by the next day, by Friday. Maybe it would be in sort of the near future. But either way, he was convinced that the Canadians would come along. I have no idea how the Canadian reporter got any information that he published. And because we honor off-the-record agreements, I can't talk about what the president might have said off the record. But to be clear, you have a transcript of the full conversation, and the White House has a transcript of the full interview. Yes. So those are the two places where record exists. Those are. The specific place that the president uh, confirmed these off-the-record comments, because he tweeted about them, the specific area was about NAFTA. That's uh, right. Policy-wise, where are we with that? Because just yesterday, the president let off a flurry of tweets saying he might, after all, withdraw from the agreement that his administration says he had intended to sign on to again. Yeah, the president and the White House feel and say that they feel that they have the leverage over Canada ultimately going into this. But as you know, they've set off sort of this 30-day time clock because of uh, the Mexican president, Mr. Peña Nieto's uh, kind of expiration date in office. And they are trying to pressure Canada into signing on now to a trilateral pact or else forcing it into two pieces. And so he's got basically till the end of September to get Canada on board, right, if, well, yeah. to make it easy through Congress to and make this not happen not just easy, it's, it might be impossible to add Canada later if they don't right. get the final text to Congress within the 30-day window. That was started on Friday, and Congress has been telling the White House about this for some time, so they're not, this is not new information to the White House. What's interesting is if you look at domestic politics in Canada, there's not a lot of incentive for the Trudeau administration to really sign on immediately. I mean, they, his sort of anti-Trump stance has been popular with uh, the Canadian constituency, and they also have a bilateral agreement on trade between Canada and the U.S. that they can fall back on. 
and the reason this matters is because this is such key trade to so many U.S. states. Absolutely. And uh, uh, corporate executives have been pressuring the president for a while now. Keep this as a three-part deal, whatever you call it, or a lot of jobs, including in the U.S., could be a risk. And you look at, you know, the, the states that I cover, the Midwest West states like Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan, mm -hmm. Wisconsin, they're all stepping back and looking at this. This is a lot of the reason why a lot of these voters came towards him and in how he conducts these negotiations. All right. We're going to take a moment and come back on the other side of this break. Stay with us. What's your next adventure? Everyone deserves a chance to do what they love. Pacific Life helps you reach financial goals while you go after your personal ones. Plans change over time and your financial solutions can too. Pacific Life has a variety of financial solutions that can help you complement your life goals and passions while managing the uncertainties. Backed by more than 150 years of experience, you can count on Pacific Life to be there so you can go out and keep living your best life. Pacific Life is one of the most dependable and experienced insurers in the industry and has been named one of the 2019 world's most ethical companies by the Ethisphere Institute. The freedom to go after whatever is next for you? That's the power of Pacific. Ask a financial professional about how Pacific Life can help give you the freedom to do what you love. Or visit www.pacificlife.com. We are back with more from our panel. Uh, Kelsey, let me talk to you about this sense of hope coming out of Senator McCain's memorial service, this emphasis, country over party, bipartisanship. We kind of get a test of that on Tuesday, right, when, when Congress <laughs> heads into session to start these proceedings to confirm Judge Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court. Will anyone remember the uh, sense of civility that they are being called to behave? Well, we're already seeing on Twitter and from statements from uh, organizations on both the left and the right trying to pressure people away from that bipartisanship. We're seeing um, particularly on the progressive side. There are a number of acti activist groups who are saying that Democrats should simply walk out and not attend these hearings. That's not something that Democrats in the Senate really want. They, they don't want that pressure because they say they take this very seriously. And the process of confirming a justice who will have a lifetime appointment to the Supreme Court is something where they want to be in the room. But again, progressive activists are aghast about this argument about not just the documents. There's been a big fight, I'm sure, as we've discussed in the past, that they want more documents related to Kavanaugh's time in public service, particularly his time in the White House. And Democrats say they haven't received enough. And Republicans say they've gone far out of their way to make sure that they produce more documents than any other uh, justice nominee has ever, you know, they've ever seen. This fight is really gearing up progressives, and they feel like they are losing a battle against, you know, filling the court. And they, they, they worry that the Trump administration is putting a stamp on not just the Supreme Court, but the lower courts for generations to come. And talking about walking out, because basically when it comes to votes, this is a fait accompli. Republicans not, have the, the numbers, right? It's not clear yet. There are a number of people who have not yet said how they are going to vote. Republicans like to think that it's a fait accompli, but progressives say that they could still pressure some people in the middle to change their minds if, that they're, if they're able to kind of get the public more engaged. Mm -hmm. Selena, how much does this resonate with the voters you talk to? In, uh, well... For a lot of voters, in particular evangelical voters, the decision, their decision to finally vote for President Trump was on the Supreme Court, uh, the, the, his ability to pick someone for the, as conservative for the Supreme Court. He put that Federalist uh, uh, list out when he was running. And this is uh, where a lot of them, you know, held back, went from their reservations to, okay, I'm going to vote for this guy. They're very energized and excited about this. This is something they're going to be watching. And, and I will say, I think one of the most vibrant things that we do in Congress is to watch the, you know, I'm old enough to remember, like, the Bork, you know, when, when Bork, Judge Bork went through the process. Um, these are one of the most vibrant things that, that the uh, that Congress does. But, you know, the Trump voters are going to be watching this. They're excited about it, and they're hopeful that, uh, that he gets across. And I think it actually helps entice some voters who are going to stay home in November because they're exhausted mm -hmm. to maybe come back out because they got that win that they wanted. Margaret, is this something that the White House feels confident that they can get those votes? 
I think on balance they do. I mean, Brett Kavanaugh is <clears throat> well within the mainstream of, of conservative background judges. He's um, served for a long time in the Bush administration. There are a lot of documents available about him. He is someone you could see being nominated by a different mainstream Republican president. Uh, and and part of the question about privilege really does go to his time inside a White House. There's a pretty long-standing pattern of privilege. Um, also, as a side note, um, Mr. There's a lawyer named Bill Burke who's getting a ton of work because he's President Bush's lawyer, as well as Don McGahn's lawyer, right. as well as a bunch of the lawyers for former Steve um, lawyer, right? yes, administration officials who may now be a target of other stuff. So, um, but look, even so, it's obviously incredibly important to the president to get this done. And there are a lot of people that he's glad to be done with who will be gone also after this confirmation. So for those political reasons, as well as the, the prize of the court. And after all, he's the president. He won an election. Elections have consequences. Yeah. He has the power to fill spots on the Supreme Court when they come open. Selena, I put Margaret on the on the hot seat at the get-go. I'm, I'm going <laughs> to ask you personally as well to respond to uh, what has been uh, some criticism of your journalism. Uh, the Huffington Post coming out with an article specifically about you saying you didn't identify a Republican in a story specifically as a Republican official and called into question a lot of your work. I'd like to give you the opportunity to respond to that. Sure. Uh, as you can imagine, this has been an interesting week for me. Um, it, it all began uh, through a series of uh, tweets by an anonymous troll. And as the Internet goes, it just expands and expands and expands. Uh, I uh, dressed with the questions that were asked uh, to Ashley, and also I put my own personal tweet out there um, addressing each, each issue that this anonymous person did. Uh, my editors have reviewed everything uh, that I work for in all the places, I, the uh, news organizations I work for, and they stand behind my work, and so do I. And you will be, I think, detailing some of this in the coming days yeah. um, beyond this conversation here. You also, though, have, have touched on or you, you mentioned some of the social media outcry. There's been this outcry and some fundraising on behalf of Republican uh, congressmen, particularly Kevin McCarthy, on this idea that social media companies are censoring conservatives. Yeah. Is there anything to that that you have experienced? Sure. I had a story that I wrote for the New York Post uh, a day or so, a day or two after Cohen and Manafort had their, you know, lovely little legal issues come out, where I went out and I, I talked to Trump voters to see, does this change you? Does this take you away? And within 24, I wrote the story, I posted it, and uh, in the morning it was gone. Uh, there was a notice that said it did not meet Facebook's community standards. I received a flurry of direct messages and, and emails and so forth from people who also posted the story and said, hey, I put your story up and it's gone. It's mm -hmm. marked as spam or, not again, not meeting community standards. Uh, so... Uh, and, and that was a, just a straight story. But the New York Post is a, a, a considered a conservative publication. I work for two conservative news organizations, along with the, with the Washington Examiner. And there is that impression that that happens. And social media companies deny that there's censorship. Kelsey, there's going to be some hearings, though, with yes. the Twitter CEO in particular uh, answering questions this coming week. Yeah. How is. much of an issue is this going to be? It, I imagine it's going to be a huge issue. We're already seeing Telegraph from... Uh, many Republican offices that they expect to talk about this very directly with the CEO. I, I would expect, though, that this may not get as much coverage because it's going to be happening at the same time as a Kavanaugh hearing. So it, I will be interested to see how, um, which, which thing breaks through on that day. Ed, we had some mixed messages coming from the Trump administration on North Korea policy. The president saying he blames China for any kind of progress being stalled right now with denuclearizing North Korea. Is there anything to that? And are we stopping or are we continuing military exercises? Because the defense secretary seems to be saying something slightly different than the president. Well, I think that we saw Trump then rebut um, any idea that there might be um, a reopening of military exercises. He came out and said on Twitter that uh, military exercises are still on hold right now. And um, I think that that will be the policy until it changes. Um, the, uh, the, um, well I, on the trade uh, on the trade war thing about China, I think yeah. he's 
basically just trying to find a reason to sort of justify the continuing trade war, which doesn't seem like it'll end anytime soon. Um, when I talk to Trump administration officials, they say that China has actually been playing ball of sanctions on North Korea. Um, Chinese banks have not violated the sanctions rules. In general, um, those sanctions are still in place. China is abiding by them. And so I think yeah. they're looking for a reason to explain the stalling um, on the diplomacy. All right. Ed, thank you very much. We'll be back in a moment. I used to think that all diet and weight loss plans were the same. Well, not anymore, because I found Noom. Noom is a new and totally different approach to losing weight and getting healthy that uses psychology and small goals to help change your habits. So it's easy to lose the weight and keep it off for good. Noom combines the power of technology with real human support, offering as little or as much help as you want along the way. And since Noom is an app, it's always with you and easy to use, which makes it super easy to stay on track and reach your goals. Plus, it's really simple to get started. Just go online, answer a few quick questions, and they'll create a personalized program just for you. Noom helped me lose my old way of thinking about food and dieting. So what do you have to lose? Visit noom.com slash podcast, N-O-O-M dot com slash podcast, and start your 14-day trial today. Like they say, change your habits, change your mind, and change for good with Noom. Later today, Senator John McCain will be buried at the Naval Academy Cemetery in Annapolis next to his best friend, Chuck Larson, following a final private funeral at the Naval Academy Chapel. Following the burial, there will be a flyover in the missing man formation. This will mark the end of five days of events honoring the Arizona senator. Here's a look back at the events leading up to today. He taught me that honor and imperfection are always in competition. I do not cry for a perfect man. I cry for a man who had honor and always was willing to admit to his imperfection. We ask for an added measure of thy spirit to be with John's sweet family, who have sacrificed so much for so long in sharing their loving husband and father with us for these many years. My name's Joe Biden. I'm a Democrat. And I love John McCain. I always thought of John as a brother. We had a hell of a lot of family fights. Many people might wonder what a young African-American kid from Minnesota and a highly decorated Vietnam War hero turned United States Senator might have in common. I'm black. He was white. I'm young. He wasn't so young. <laughs> How does this unlikely pair become friends? That's just who he is. Over the several years, I had the privilege of spending time with Senator McCain. Sometimes it was just a visit to our practices. Other times it was him texting and saying, oh, you need to pick it up this Sunday. Rarely does this glorious rotunda fall silent at this hour. On a day like this, John would usually be bounding this way or that way, right through here, visitors turning to each other, asking if that's who they think it is. But in this quiet hour, we are left to ponder how his life speaks to us. This is one of the bravest souls our nation has ever produced. That's perhaps how we honor him best. By recognizing that there are some things bigger than party, or ambition, or money, or fame, or power, but there's some things that are worth risking everything for. At his best, 
John showed us what that means. For that, we are all deeply in his debt. None of us will ever forget how even in his parting, John has bestowed on us a much-needed moment of unity and a renewed faith in the possibilities of America. One of his books ended with the words, and I moved on. John has moved on. He would probably not want us to dwell on it, but we are better for his presence among us. The world is smaller for his departure, and we will remember him as he was, unwavering, undimmed, unequal. Daddy boy, oh daddy boy, I love you so. That's it for us today. Thanks for watching. I hope to see you next week. For Face the Nation, I'm Margaret Brennan. Today's guests were former Secretary of State John Kerry and Ohio Republican Governor John Kasich. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Allison Hawley. Face the Nation originates from CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com. If you like Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Are you ready for an all-new season of Survivor? You better be because Survivor 46 is here and it's 90 minutes of twists and turns you don't want to miss. Better yet, after each episode, there's a brand new episode of On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. Each week, we go behind the scenes of the episode's biggest moments, taking you into the how and the why things happened. And this season, we're very lucky to be joined by an expert, the winner of Survivor 45, Divya Daris. What is up? I'm thrilled to be joining this team and to be giving you my take on how and the why players made the moves they did, what it takes to outwit, outplay, and outlast, and to ask Jeff some questions because... Even after 26 days out there, there is still a lot for me to uncover. Bring it, D. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Van Sant from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, early and ad-free, starting May 1st with a 48 Hours Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts.